0: Welcome to the American Opioid Podcast, written and narrated by Jamal Khan. The podcast features a research-backed fictional narrative about the opioid crisis. Additional episodes, along with the website, will feature interviews with real-life individuals involved in the opioid crisis in various capacities. For more information, or to get in touch with the creator of the podcast, check out the website at www.americanopioid.org. Disclaimer. This podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of a physician or other qualified health provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical or behavioral health condition. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking it because of something you have heard on this podcast. And now, we begin the first episode of Season 1. They met when she could not speak and he could not hear. They met in the most affordable daycare center in the city of Regal, one of the nation's many flashpoints of the opioid crisis. He was two. She was three. They relied on each other for survival. They met when she could not speak and he could not hear. His name was Matt. Once the divorce was finalized, Matt's mother started working again, and dropped him off at City Day Nursery every day in the early morning. It was crowded and cacophonous, with tiny bodies scampering to and fro across a fraying carpet anchored by blaring TVs, but it was all she could afford. Even at that young age, Matt felt the sting of loss. Of an opportunity slipping away from his fingertips, of missing what might have been. At the time, Matt's father was completely unaware that Matt was deaf. Not that it would have made a difference in his decision to leave and never come back. But still. They met when she could not speak and he could not hear. Her name was Jane. Her parents were still together, but her father had been laid off from his construction job because of the recession looming over the country, taking out casualties at random and leaving the survivors on tenterhooks. He had found a gig in the hospitality industry, but there was not anywhere near as much money in it, so her mother had started working as well. Hence, Jane's entry into City Day Nursery. On the other side of the turnpike, Jane was an adorable little girl, more than most other girls her age, but her childhood was blotched by her voice. At the age of two, she had developed a throat infection. Jane's overworked parents had just given her cough syrup, oblivious to the fact that it was much more serious. Because the infection was not diagnosed until it was too late, the surgeon had to remove parts of her voice box in the emergency room. Child Protective Services had looked into the matter, but it was routine and never led to anything. The surgery that saved Jane's life left her with a voice that was scratchy and guttural, with a grinding texture reminiscent of an engine starved of lubrication. Even at her young age, she noticed when adults, hearing her for the first time, would suddenly have quizzical expressions fall over their faces. Then it would all be smoothed over, and they would pretend that nothing was wrong. The kids at the daycare, and later in school, were not as subtle. What's wrong with Jane's voice? Why does she sound like that? Hush, hush, it's all right, a caretaker would say. Sometimes people sound different, just like sometimes people look different. But that's fine. Think about how boring the world would be if everyone looked and sounded and acted the same. Sometimes the intervention helped. Sometimes it had no effect, and sometimes it made things worse. Sometimes the teasing slipped below the radar. Later, in elementary school, she would be called names like Robot and Satan. But far earlier than that, the damage had been done. She never spoke to anyone other than her parents, When out in public, she could not even look up at people. Instead, she trained her eyes downward, her field of vision consisting solely of pavement and asphalt, tile and carpet, big shoes and little shoes. At City Day Nursery, she let herself get sucked into the comforting aura of one of the TVs clustered throughout the space. There were usually at least several showing cartoons. Gluing herself to a screen allowed her to not have to speak to anyone. She would sit beside the other children, who would be too hypnotized by the animation, to chat. During the boring commercials, she looked around. She would much rather be doing other things, like playing with the blocks or the Barbies, But there were always groups of children in the way, and they would be chattering amongst each other excitedly. So she shied away, despite her yearning for something more interactive. Then, one day, she noticed a new boy at the daycare. From the start, she could tell he was different. He did not interact with anyone, just like her but he also avoided the TVs. He just sat and observed the other children, lost himself in them, until he seemed to be unaware of his own self. When the other children called out to him, he did not react at all, just stared at them instead. Soon, Jane stared at Matt, trying to figure him out. Matt was particularly drawn to the blocks. He would take a few, but instead of building something, he would just move them around on the floor with his hands. Fascinated. But other children would butt in and grab random blocks for whatever they were building, and he would cry in frustration. He wanted everything to be a certain way, and seemed unable to tolerate the slightest disturbance. Then, one day, he noticed a box of crayons in the corner, forgotten. He removed them from the box, gently, and spent an entire day lining them up in different combinations while Jane watched, intrigued. One of the caregivers, concerned about Matt's lack of interaction with the other children, was kind. She gave him some scraps of paper and, holding his tiny hand within hers, helped him do some coloring. When Matt saw that the color from the crayon had been magically transferred onto the paper, he gaped at what they had done, at what he had done. Then, looking up at her with sheer joy in his eyes, he jumped up and down arms raised, fists clenched in jubilation. She gave him a hug, and from then on, she stored his crayons and papers in a special place in the back, bringing them out when he arrived and keeping them safe when he was gone. Jane watched all this take place with wonder. Something about Matt was magnetic to her. He would sit with the crayons, experimenting with different approaches to drawing, and soon, shading. At one point, she did not remember exactly when, she came forward and sat next to him as he drew. For a couple of hours, he did not even realize she was there because he was so absorbed. When he finally did notice her presence, he eyed her warily, thinking that she would intrude on what he was doing. Over time, though, he saw that she was not interfering with his process, not pawing at the crayons like the other kids, so he did not mind having her around. In fact, he kind of liked the attention, the audience of one in the frenetic, packed playroom. He was stuck to his drawings, and she was stuck to him. Not infrequently, a waft would flow through the room and cause noses to wrinkle. The close quarters made it worse. One of the caregivers would then need to pick up toddlers in the vicinity of the stench and sniff bottoms to identify the culprit, and then bring the little one to the back for a diaper change. This was routine. About a half-dozen signaled the passage of half the day. And a little over a full dozen foretold the moment when exhausted, irritable parents would soon start arriving to pick up their children from the harried staff. Matt and Jane were mostly oblivious until their own turns came to leave. He left a bit before her, and she would feel anxious in the interim, though less so because most of the other children were already gone. She felt safe with him. The two of them would always be off in their corner, away from the TVs, away from the other children, in their own cozy little world. She could speak as much as she wanted, could sing and scream, wail and weep without fear of being judged or mocked. She could be herself. She loved it. Over time, their relationship became more reciprocal. He would sit patiently, watching her, without saying anything. She would act out small scenes she made up in her head. The pirate, the bad guy, the damsel in distress. She would transition between the characters expertly, playing each one with aplomb. And he would always watch, quietly, always with interest. He did not applaud He did not need to. The sheer intensity of his gaze upon her was enough. He was her reason for getting on, the source of her confidence. He gave her back her voice. She felt as if she once again had full permission to use it. Other children would openly guffaw at her soliloquies sometimes from just a few steps away, finding a common identity in their communal ridicule of her. Matt was never like that. He rarely said anything, and yet it was as if he communicated with her the most, as if his calm assurance could hold her in place upright, impervious to the gusts of laughter and scorn that crashed against her from all sides. He was an oasis amidst the unforgiving desert of the social. She loved him for that. She would softly croon into his ear with her broken voice, a voice he could not hear. He was friendless, and she was friendless, and they connected in their friendlessness. They became something that most of the friended could not understand and that some never would. Later, when they started grade school at different places, they would see each other much less, just in the afternoons. Still, each day she would yearn for the time when she would be able to see him again, be herself again, be safe and free again. The two made an indelible mark on each other. A bond that would persist over vastly changing circumstances despite the events that would follow, heralded by an impending crisis that would leave its deadly mark on all 50 states. Already there were signs. The uniformed men who marched in, whispered to a staff member, then escorted a child out of the building A caregiver who kept nodding off, despite remonstrations from her colleagues, until one time when the one-year-old she was holding slipped from her grasp and thudded against the floor. Jane saw two grown-ups rush toward them, huddle over the scene, gesture animatedly. A few minutes later, paramedics rushed in and took the baby. Jane saw a spot of blood on the floor she did not see that caregiver again. Amidst the disruption and dysfunction, Matt took some of the crayons and drew various shapes on the blank white paper. At first, they were scratches, doodles, shadings. But over time, they became more elaborate. He would concentrate on one for a very long time, completing it only after several days then hold it out with his arms completely extended, scrutinizing it carefully. Then he would draw the next one, and she could see the resemblance between it and the previous one, with slight alterations. Then he would move on to the next one, and then the next, each succeeding iteration taking less time than the one before. Sometimes he would show her his drawings in a series, as if he were telling her a story. Then he would dance around, excited, fists manically pumping in the air, as if he had accomplished something big. She did not understand what he thought he had achieved, since she could not really make out any recognizable shapes, but she felt just as happy for him nonetheless. Then he would start over again. She watched him draw, and he watched her act. By observing her closely, he picked up the basics of lip-reading. He did not yet have the privilege of learning sign language from a professional, so he sat silently and watched. Soon, he made out her name. Of course, because he was picking it all up from scratch, his lip-reading skills were not precise. She pointed toward herself, told him her name was Jane. He called her Rain. No, Jane, she said, giggling. She pointed to herself again. Jane, Jane, he smiled shyly. Rain. Then, suddenly, one day, Matt was not there when she arrived that afternoon. That was okay, she thought. Maybe he had gotten sick or something. A cold had kept her away for a few days. Surely he would be back. He was not there the following day, or the day after that. Jane looked around, frantic. Where did he go? What had happened? She began to worry. Then the week concluded, and the weekend arrived. She did not enjoy it. The whole time, she was pensive. On Monday, when he failed to show up yet again, something collapsed inside her and all reserve went out the window. Where's Matt? Where's Matt? Who? Matt! Matt! Where is he? When she saw the quizzical looks, her panic spiraled out of control and she started crying hysterically. Do a search for that other kid, will you? I can't take that much more of this awful noise. I mean, she shouldn't be crying like this. You know who I'm talking about, the one who's with her all the time, with the crayons off in the corner? It turned out that Matthew Kane was no longer coming to the daycare. His mother had figured out something called alternative arrangements. It was a fancy way of saying that he was lost to her for good. Jane fell into a deep depression. She wandered around the facility in a haze. Before, school had been easy to handle. She had put up with the teasing and the isolation by looking forward to the time when she would be able to see Matt again, be herself again. But now, that was gone. When she lost him, she felt as if she had lost herself. Jane did not utter a single word outside her family for nearly a year. In school, she was held back a grade. The administration recommended to her parents that she see a therapist. Jane's life raft was gone. She would have to deal with it all on her own. She did not know that the opioid crisis took Matt away from her, but she did know. That she would need to learn how to survive without him welcome to american opioid now as a listener you may be wondering where are the pills the needles the other drug paraphernalia where are the sirens the body bags the chalk marks Is this podcast really about opioids? Yes, it is. But it's also about people and their family members and friends. You see, behind each statistic that documents an overdose death, there was once a person whose experience of the world was just as rich and vivid as yours or mine. And each one of them And each one of us looked at the world long ago as Jane once did, through the eyes of an innocent child who wanted nothing more than to know why her playmate had suddenly vanished. Opioids did not show up in this episode. They will not show up in the next episode either, or the one after that. You see, We need to explore something else first. Matt's mother did not believe he was deaf, despite being informed of that fact months before Matt and Jane ever met. See you next time for Episode 2 of American Opioid.